That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Scott Pioli, and my dilemma is... I've already failed at my New Year's resolution. It's a dilemma that I can't stick to silly promises like eating healthier 48 hours into a uh, into a new year. <laughs> well, 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 isn't this timely, Scott? Because last week's episode of this very podcast, That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, featured my friend Lizzie Cutler, who gives you the best tips on staying accountable to your resolutions and trying to understand the reasons why you can't stick to them. One thing that I started doing this year that I haven't done in years past with my resolutions is I physically wrote them down and I have a journal where each day I have to check off whether I accomplished the things that I said I was going to do. For instance, instead of waking up at a certain time, I'm trying to wake up about an hour earlier every weekday so that I have more time during my day to get things done. And so every day, if I didn't wake up by the time that I said, I can't put a check mark. And so I do that for each of the resolutions and hope to be able to see check marks across the entire week for progress and simultaneously writing down reasons why things might not be a good resolution or might not be doable. How can I adjust them and tweak them and make them something that I will be able to accomplish every day. So go back, listen to my podcast with Lizzie Cutler. Go back even farther, listen to my podcast with Gretchen Rubin, who talks about her book, Better Than Before, which is all about changing habits and behaviors. And then check back in with me. I promise you'll have a better a better time doing it if you start with those. The commish has spoken. My guest today is Scott Pioli, five-time NFL Executive of the Year, founding member of the Bill Walsh Diversity Council, and was most recently the Assistant General Manager of the Falcons. Also served as a front office executive for the Browns, Ravens, Jets, Patriots, and Chiefs. He was the director and later VP of player personnel for the Patriots from 01 to 08, which means he oversaw three Super Bowl championships, the drafting of Brady, a lot of good years there. And he's currently working as an NFL analyst for CBS Sports and a consultant for the NFL. We had a pretty wide-ranging conversation starting out with him getting into coaching and then eventually moving over to the executive side, including a degree that took him from 1988 to 2005. So that's an interesting story. His really special friendship with Bill Belichick, the awkward facts that Bill sent to Pioli's new father-in-law, Bill Parcells, to get himself out of the Jets job and onto the Patriots. Great behind-the-scenes stories on drafting Tom Brady and how they turn that team around, why the Patriots are so successful and why other teams like the Jets and Browns can't seem to get out of their own way, and also about a teacher of his that made him the fierce advocate for gender and racial diversity that he is now and the work that he's doing on that. So you'll love this conversation, whether you're an NFL geek or not, but especially if you are. That's what she said. Excited to have uh, what I would consider a new friend from afar on the podcast. I don't believe we've actually ever met in person, although it may have happened years and years ago at some random NFL event where neither of us knew who the other person was. But happy to have him on now after he's been on my radio show, Spain and Company, a couple times and a fascinating brain to pick about not just his career and some of the great coaches and players he's worked with and succeeded with, but also what he's working on now to change the face of the NFL and the foundations, endowments, and work that he's doing to make the NFL more inclusive, which, of course, as you guys all know as regular listeners, is something that's very important to me. Scott Pioli. Uh, I want to start at the beginning, Scott, though, and we'll speed through some of this so we can get to all the good stuff you're working on now, but I want to set a table for who you are. Uh, you grew up in Washingtonville, New York, and you were a linebacker, defensive lineman in high school. Uh, was sports from the beginning it for you? Is this something that you knew from a young age was going to be your life? Um, I hoped it was going to be my life. I told everyone it was going to be my life, including my teachers who weren't very fond of the idea because, you know, when you're growing up in the 70s, there there weren't as many sports jobs. And if you didn't play or didn't coach, um, you weren't going to be able to be involved in sports. So, again, it was a, you know, I had myself fooled for a long time that I was going to play in the NFL and uh, be the next Dick Butkus and wear number 51, but that never happened. Um, it ended after college, but uh, yeah, football became a, you know, the, my job <laughs> and, uh, I hoped, and I've been really blessed that it's happened actually. Yeah. Were you into other stuff? Did you play anything other than football? Did you play a musical instrument? What did you like outside of football? Well, it's, it's funny. I, I played other sports. I played baseball, loved baseball. Um, 
was probably better in baseball as a youth uh, or certain, and, and in high school, but I loved um, football for a lot of reasons, one of them being the physical contact. And, um, but yeah, and I was, I, you know, it's funny. I, um, I didn't play an instrument while well, not very long. There were a lot of things that I did and I didn't do them very long. I guess I, I dabbled, right? I wrestled for a little while, but I wasn't disciplined enough you know, was in track and field and threw the shot and discus, but again, nice. wasn't disciplined or focused enough to be an athlete that could just work off on their own. Um, I was a team sport guy. Yeah, I had a lot of other um, loves, and uh, those things kind of remained in the background until partway through college when I decided it was um, actually okay to live outside the football player mentality and life. Yeah. So you went to Central Connecticut State, um, you graduated with a degree in communications. Uh, mm-hmm. You put together a Hall of Fame career there as a defensive tackle. So you were on your way to playing and becoming Dick Butkus and doing all the things you had <laughs> dreamed of. Um, well, well, I got to tell you, Sal, it's funny. You say, you, you know, and even in the back, well, you played linebacker, then defensive end, and then you mentioned <laughs> defensive tackle. What happened right. was every year I got fatter and slower <laughs> compared to the athletes I was competing against. So, I had a little bit of talent and, and certainly instincts, so they're like, okay, this guy belongs in the field, but he's, you know, he's getting pretty fat, so we have to keep moving. <laughs> the closer you get to the line of scrimmage and to the ball just means it has a lot to do with, I think, right. your body type. Right, <laughs> and your body happened. type kept changing, and so did your position. Um, yeah, yeah, I like food too much. <laughs> so at what point did you realize, okay, so I'm not going to be an NFL player, and now what do I do? You know, I think the reality set in um, my after my junior year where, you know, I was performing well at that level. We were a Division two school moving up to Division one AA. It was that transition year. And, um, you know, I'd heard about small school guys that made it. And then, again, I was I was fortunate to to play well at that level and be, a, you know, was considered probably a very good player at that level. And then I'll never forget, I had a, a chance where I was worked out by a combine scout and then a scout from one NFL team. And when I worked out next to some of these other players, I think that's when reality set in. And right. I also realized, you know, my body type in terms of my height and things, I just was not, I was a good player for the college level I played at. I wasn't as good as an NFL player. And I attended, you know, one of the things I did when I was younger, I went to NFL training camps. Um, that's a much longer story, but that's how and when I met Bill Belichick my junior year of college and spending time around those, watching those players every single day in training camp, trying to learn how to be a better football player um, and taking notes and being, you know, one of those weirdos that kept a notebook on everything I watched. <laughs> I realized I wasn't good enough. So the, the reality set in, and then I go, you know, I said to myself, okay, there's other things I want to do. And um, I think being a football coach is next. Yeah. So what did your parents do when you, when you were growing up? What did they do for work? So my dad worked for a company that way back was known as Western Electric, um, which became New York Tell, which became part of uh, – one of the largers, I can't remember which one it was, but I, I, I lost track. So my dad was what they called an installer, and it was hardcore, blue-collar, very physical labor that he did um, his entire, um, you know, for the entire time that he worked. My mom was on and off, um, you know, did different things. I mean, she, she was a mother at 17 with my, my oldest sister, mm. and... Um, so my mother did a lot of things. She was a mother. She was a stay-at-home mom. But any moment that she had that she could make extra money for the family, because by the time my parents were, I want to say, 29 and 27, they had four kids, a house payment, a car payment, and they were, you know, bills to pay. And yeah. four other mouths to take care of. And, um, you know, there was six of us in this very small, I think it was a 1,400-square-foot home that had two bedrooms and my mom did a lot of things. Um, she did, she was very, very, my mom is brilliant, although didn't have a professional life because, right. you know, her generation and circumstances didn't allow that, but she did everything from keeping the books at a, um, car dealership to cleaning other people's homes to, um, my mother was much smarter and capable 
than what life allowed her to be or what the circumstances of life allowed her to be. So she was an incredible stay-at-home mom, and whenever she could make extra money for the family, she did. Yeah. I mean, that's the story of so many women uh, at different times in history. But, oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so if you, you pay attention to it, it can be very inspiring. Oh, for sure. And it's it certainly sounds like I'm sure that's part of the reason of the work you're doing now, but we'll get to that later. Yes. So <laughs> you mentioned that you would drive 90 minutes to the Giants training camp when you were a student. Belichick was the defensive coordinator at the time, kind of yeah. took a, a liking to your hard work and your desire to, to, to make the trek and show up every day. And that came back around later. But first, you leave college and decide to get a master's at Syracuse, right, and become a graduate assistant for the football team. At the time, this still was the dream of becoming a coach. Yeah, so here a weird thing happened in my last um, couple of semesters of school, though, Sarah. Um, you know, I, I loved football and was open up to this world of communications, became a television film major, and I was open up to this whole world that I didn't know anything about. And interestingly, that's why I refer to you when you asked about interests I had growing up. I kind of let my guard down, you know, when I was in college and started hanging out with non-football people um, mm-hmm. and people within my major that were communications majors. And they were very different from me, right? They listened to different music. They socialized differently. It was a really cool eye-opening experience. And, you know, attorney, we attended film festivals and did things. It was just a very cool – I led this double life of the football player and then also this person – that finally got exposed to the arts and things that I had secretly loved but really hadn't engaged in. So when I went to, um, when I was looking to become a graduate assistant coach, I was actually in my last year and final semester thinking to myself, I had a little bit of an identity crisis. Okay, football was over. I was mad that football was over, but I knew I wanted to coach. But then there was this other world that I was open up to. Why don't I look at schools that have good communication programs? And was fortunate, I didn't ever think that I'd get a shot to go to Syracuse and, you know, get into the Newhouse School, um, but I did. And it was really cool because I was able to get my master's, um, you know, be a graduate assistant coach for two years, um, have two more years of scholarship and get a, a, a master's degree uh, from the Newhouse School. But I'll tell you, yeah. it's a much longer story. We're going to have to do a second show. But I started <laughs> my, I started in the summer of 1988 after I graduated and had to go to school early because my GPA wasn't high enough to get admitted into Newhouse. So I did yeah. three court classes that summer. And then finally, the lovely people at Newhouse said, oh, yes, we'll take you in now. <laughs> and And so I started, but then I was offered a full-time job before I completed and it's a long story that I won't get into, but I did not complete all of the coursework until 1998. Oh, wow. When I left Syracuse every single year, I had to reapply to keep my file active and completed the coursework. But then, this is crazy. I did not take my comps until 2005. So I started that degree in 1988, but swore that I was not you know, that I was going to finish it, and I finally completed it in 2005. When I was working as a vice president player personnel with the Patriots. That's Crazy great. Story. That's great. Yeah, so the Patriots, let's get back to that. So yeah. you you work as an assistant and coordinator level at a couple places, but then you get hired by Belichick with the Browns. And mm-hmm. this was now not uh, a coaching position. This was a front office position. So yeah. what was the switch and what made you willing or maybe interested in leaving the coaching side and getting to the front office? A, a couple of things, Sarah. You know, um, I loved coaching and in college. So I coached for four years in college. I loved coaching. I loved evaluating players. I loved recruiting. You know, I I didn't have anything but football in my life at that point in time. And I actually think I was a better evaluator of talent and I was a coach. I could coach well in terms of technique, fundamentals, relationships, but I was not a game plan guy. And when I got to the Browns, when Belichick hired me, I didn't care what I was doing. And he kind of, when he hired me, he said to me, he said, listen, I don't know what the job entails. I don't know what the title is. I can't give you a day-to-day schedule, but I want you here. And you're going to do a little bit of everything. And I'll never forget one of the greatest quotes out of Bill that um, he said to me, just looked at me and said, listen, I don't know what you're going to do, but the more you can do, the more you can do. <laughs> nice. 
I looked at him like, yeah, I didn't know what he was saying <laughs> or what it meant. And uh, I said, yeah, sign me up. And I took this job and he had me everywhere. I was doing stuff, helping coaches. I was helping in player personnel. And then it was the first year also that the new CBA was done in 92. And we, you know, Bill wanted to have someone who understood multiple facets of, of football and business and w- would maybe think a little bit differently. So I learned the salary cap and uh, was in a very fortunate place and very fortunate timing. And honestly, I just felt like I was more, I was better and more helpful working in personnel than I was coaching. Yeah. So, so you start with the Browns and Belichick, but then when they move to Baltimore after the 95 season, you stick around with them, become a part of the Ravens staff, and you become pro personnel coordinator. And then you leave, though, and you, and you rejoin Belichick as he goes to the Jets. You become the director of pro personnel for them. And then again, when Belichick accepts the Patriots head coaching spot, you become the VP of player personnel in New England. So there is a deep tie there that goes beyond him liking the way that you worked and showed up as a college student, or even liking working with you with the Browns and, and, and anywhere else he went. Why do you think there was this tie that kept you following or, uh, or him bringing you along wherever he went? Wow. Um, I, he would probably have to answer that. From my standpoint, it was Bill was always all about football, and that was what I wanted to be about. Um, I think we were in lockstep that way, and we had a really good professional relationship, but ours transcended the professional, and we were good personal friends and, 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 and close friends as well. I think we saw a lot of the world, um, particularly the football world, very, very similarly. And I also think that we had enough differences where we were not only compatible, but we also complemented one another well. Again, I think it, I don't know his reasons. I just know that he was happy with the work that I did. And well, maybe from would, your side, what, why I'm was sorry. it worth continuing to go where he was instead of maybe staying with the Ravens or staying with the Jets when he left? Was it an option for you or were you always sort of tied well, to him in terms of? You know, I had known him since college and he provided me with opportunities and I'm an extremely loyal person and I always felt like I was learning. I was learning working with him Mm. and it was fun, you know, and again, we believed in a lot of the same things. We had some of the core values about the game, about keeping certain things so simple in terms of being on time, paying attention, working hard. And I think, you know, I left the, I left the Ravens because, you know, people forget his bill was the head coach of the New York Jets two separate times, but never coached a game. And (laughs) after that first year in 96, even though, I was working with Ozzy, you know, Bill called Ozzy and I'll never forget Ozzy said, Hey, listen, your boy called and I want you here, but I think it would be a good idea if you were back with your guy, Bill. So I went and so Belichick was the head coach for a couple of days and then Parcells became the head coach. Bill and I had an office right next to one another that had a door between us during those three years at the Jets. And, you know, we had, again, we worked together professionally, but then when we had downtime, we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, when, when things didn't work out in Cleveland, we became much closer, even though we spent that one season apart, 1996, and we talked about the future and talked about successes, failures, ideas, dreams about, okay, if we ever tried to do something together, this is what it looked like. And then the opportunity came, and it was a weird, a very weird dynamic, I'll tell you, Sarah. In 1999, I had just gotten married in June of 1999. Oh, by the way, my wife's father is Parcells. And yeah, yeah. then that whole fight starts at the end of the 99 thing when Bill is named the head coach again and then resigns the next day. And Belichick you know, gets the job at the Patriots and then sends a fax to my now father-in-law, wanting to bring me to New England. Um, again, we don't have enough time for all of that. And, uh, but it was one of those things. I had this long, hard conversation with, with Bill Parcells, and I was going to stay in New York because I was under contract. And, you know, my life had now had this other dynamic of loyalty to family. 
But in the end, you know, again, Bill Parcells said, listen, this is probably going to be better for your career. He's your boy. Go on your way. So until I received that blessing, you know, I wasn't sure if I was going to be together. Now, Bill and I had been talking for years about what it would be someday um, if I ran the personnel and the contracts and the salary cap and he was the head coach. What a cool partnership it would be. And it became a pretty cool partnership. I was going to say it worked out pretty well. Um, so he becomes the Pats head coach in 2000. You become the VP of player personnel. And you win three Super Bowls together. You kind of split the duties of general manager, although Bill had the final say on stuff, according to the interwebs. Hopefully they are correct <laughs> there. Um, Absolutely. And he did. Yeah, he did. That 2000 season, that year, very important, obviously, because of the acquisition of a specific player. Tell me about scouting and selecting Tom Brady, what you knew about him, what you perceived him to become, and whether there was disagreement within the room about about when you took him or taking him at all. Well, it's, again, a long story, but um, I did see Brady play his senior year. As a matter of fact, um, Adam Shine and I, um, he reminded me, uh, I don't know if you know Adam or not, uh, Adam was working at Syracuse at the time, and he introduced himself to me in September of 1999 when I was uh, on my way to Buffalo to do a, uh, an advanced pro personnel scouting gig but was in the area and dropped by to see the Syracuse-Michigan game, and they had this quarterback, their starting quarterback was this guy by the name of Brady, and um, then there was his backup, Drew Henson. So that was the first time, um, and it was a very unremarkable game that he had, but I remember seeing him there, right, and I remember watching him because there was some buzz around his name because of the battle with Drew Henson. Anyway, taking it to the draft, you know, several months later, because at that time I was working for the Jets when I saw him play, and then a couple months later, here's what I'll say about the drafting of Brady. It was probably one of the coolest and best, most collaborative processes of drafting a player that I've been a part of because it had, it's attached to so much success for so many people. But the reality is when we stacked our board that year, again, stepping back, our roster at that point in time, when we arrived at the Patriots, we had 41 players on the roster, but we were $10.5 million over the cap. We had to drop back to 39 players, restructure contracts, and got down to 39 players, but were under the cap. So as we're starting the spring of 2000, we've got 39 players, we've got wow. to build a roster to 80, and only a certain number of draft picks. Yeah. And the reality is, we had three quarterbacks, right? We were just trying to fill a roster at that point in time. I want to say we probably had close to what was an, an NFL record that year in signing. I think we signed 27 or 29 rookie free agents just to fill our roster after that draft because we didn't have the money to sign veterans. But going back to Tommy, we started talking about him in the third or fourth round, but it wasn't really relevant because – What we did have was three players. We had three quarterbacks on the roster. We had Drew Bledsoe, John Fries, and Michael Bishop. So we needed to fill a roster. What we didn't need was another quarterback, and we didn't need to spend a draft pick on a quarterback. The thing is, we kept talking about Brady. By the time we got to the sixth round, I want to say before we took Brady, we took another corner. Um, We had two picks in the sixth round. And um, at one point, we're just sitting there like, he was so separated as visually as you're looking at the board. He was so far to the left, and there were all these other players in the mix we were talking about. We got to the point where we said, okay, we know we need players based on need, but if we don't draft what we believe is the best player available at this moment, you know, let's not be dumb about it. And the process of scouting Brady, a lot of people liked him. You know, our quarterback's coach at the time was a uh, gentleman by the name of Dick Rabine, who unfortunately passed away in Tommy's second season. He had a heart attack in training camp and, and passed away. But Dick Rabine went and worked him out, loved him. Charlie Weiss, the offensive coordinator, had watched him, loved him. Ernie Adams, myself, everyone liked him. But we also didn't see anything rare or special to force us to pick him sooner than that. But it did come down to a point where we kept on talking about this guy. We have to take him off the board at some point in time. 
So and when you saw that, him up there, would at that moment, would you have said, if someone had grabbed him because you had waited and tried to fill out the roster before taking him, how disappointed would you have been? Was there something inside of you that um, this is the guy? I think or would it have been, oh, man, we really thought been. that, you know. Yes, sir. I think all of us would have been disappointed if we didn't take him at that point in time because everyone liked him enough. You know what I mean? Right. It, it wasn't going to be just myself being disappointed. And again, because here's the thing is, it's never just one person that drafts a player and that is responsible for a player. You know, there were still other people there from the previous staff. I mean, Bobby Greer was still on the staff, right? He had been the general manager and been demoted. And there were other people there that, so again, it was this collaborative process. And I think everyone would have been disappointed had we left him there. At one after 199, which is why I think we decided to take him. Here's what I do know, Sarah, and I can say this, and because all the people that say that it's luck, it's dumb luck, there was some luck involved, no doubt. But I think one of the other things was when we had him in training camp and in, the, in that short um, rookie mini camp and off season, we went into the 2001 season, and at points in time we had a 53 man roster. We had only 51 players and didn't even have the full amount of practice squad players that were available to us because of cap reasons. Again, we were, we were digging ourselves out of absolute salary cap hell that we inherited, even in the second year. Hmm. But what we did is we kept – we had 51 players on our roster at one point in time, but we had four quarterbacks. We were not going to release Tom Brady because once we got him in the building, we realized there was something about this kid – that was different and that had a future and could be developed. Now, did we think it was going to be what it became? <laughs> no, but we thought we had a really good player that was going to be better and going to be the replacement for Drew Bledsoe at some point in time. So on a 51-man roster, we, had, we still had you know, Bledsoe, Freeze, Brady, and um, Michael Bishop. So the, we kept four quarterbacks. So we knew something, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. Once we got him. So how do you make such a quick turnaround from salary cap hell and immediately start to have success, 01, 03, 04, because there are teams that haven't even made the postseason and gotten bounced in the wild card round as many times as, as you were successful in those very early years. How do you turn it around that fast? This is a great question because no one's asked this question, because, and this is important because when I listen to people give revisionist history of how we built the Patriots, they forget the most critical year and the most critical season when we were in salary cap hell. And we had to part ways with a number of players that were good players and that we liked, yet we couldn't keep them all. And what we did in our second year, and, and Sarah, this is we were the first team, I believe we were the first team that built its roster, and its team through free agency. Hmm. And what we did, we relied on pro personnel. We knew that we would get some good young players, and we got a couple of good young players in those first two years, and Richard Seymour, Matt Light, Brady, et cetera. But again, you know, Tommy wasn't Brady by that time. But in the 2001 season, Sarah, we signed veteran free agents. We signed, I want to say it was 25 veteran free agents. But we signed players because we didn't have any money. We didn't have any salary cap space. We focused on players that were good players, not high star quality players, not big names. We went for substance, not sizzle. We went after the Mike Grables, the Mark Edwards, Anthony Pleasant defensive lineman, Bobby Hamilton defensive lineman, Larry Izzo, backup linebacker, special teams player. We built the team on the middle class. And... Because we were still saddled with the enormous contract of Drew Bledsoe, of Bruce Armstrong, of all of these players that had been given enormous contracts during the, the Patriots' small run you know, to that Super Bowl in 96 against the Green Bay Packers. And a lot of those players were rewarded with huge contracts. So we, had, we inherited this, this roster that had a bunch of high-end, high-class, high-salary players and a bunch of players that were at the absolute minimum. We built through the middle class. We were a good pro personnel group. And we brought in a lot of players that, again, were a player like Mike Vrabel, who was a backup and special teams player at the Pittsburgh Steelers. We saw a guy who could be a tremendous player in Bill's system. We also saw a player that could coexist 
with Bill Belichick, the person. And that's how we built that football team. And we signed, that year we signed over 20 players for less than $3 million in total signing bonuses. And at that point, you're not even, quote unquote, the Patriots yet, where you can get those guys because they know that showing up there is going to mean winning. So that's, we that's offered opportunity, though. Yeah. We offered opportunity and we offered truth. So, and we told players when they came in, listen, this is going to be a dogfight. We're not telling you that you're coming in to be the starter. We're telling you that you're coming in to compete for, to be in a real competition for a starting position. And there were no politics involved. We weren't going to, you know, no one was going to keep a job because their salary was more and no one was going to keep a job because they were drafted at a certain level. It was a true meritocracy and we created a system that was a meritocracy and we played the players that deserved to play. Brian Cox, you know, those players. And now I'll tell you this, it rubbed a number of the players wrong that were, that we had inherited. Not everyone dug that, but we didn't care because our job was to win games not to play favorites. So when you look back at your time with the Patriots and you look at the success they continue to have now, Mm -hmm. can you even look at an organization like that and explain why it works well? Every other team in the NFL wants to know, how can we do this? Why are we constantly rehiring coaches and starting fresh and can't find a quarterback? And is it as simple as if you have the world's best quarterback and the world's best coach, you just got to make, Good decisions and filling the pieces around them. I think, and this is this is probably overly philosophical. I think that part of the problem is that people do try to oversimplify certain things. Not that you want to make it complicated, but you can't look at something and say this is the one reason why it worked or this is the one reason why it didn't work. You know, things in life are generally speaking uh, a combination of things. Now. Has Bill Belichick become the greatest coach in NFL history? 100%. Was he a tremendous coach that became a great coach during that time? Yes. Is Brady the greatest quarterback of all time? I believe he is, although I don't necessarily like to talk about all-time comparisons. Those two things are true, but I also think during the process of arriving to that place, it wasn't always that way. Right, those first couple of years, Tom. That first year we won the Super Bowl. Tom Brady was—he was an above-average quarterback that had some good moments, and we had a terrific defense. We had an opportunistic defense. We had a snowball game that went our way. You know, I think people try to take—they um, try to reduce things down to um, saying it's any one thing. What we did up there was we built a system, we built a program, and then we continued to hire people, grow people. And we did it on the personnel side. We did it on the coaching side. We did it on the player side. And I think what's consistently happened with that organization is that everyone who's been there takes so much ownership in their role while they're there that they are selfless. We were selfless in teaching and training everyone to someday take our job, whether it was players, whether it was coaches, whether it was myself and other scouts there was a true team element that's what i think is rare about the patriots and 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 what was done and i don't know if that makes sense sarah and what i'm saying yeah and 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 the constants have been bill and tom right and they've they've also been surrounded by people that have been trained in the same way that believe in the system and the core values of the system So when there is, when players and coaches and front office people and scouts depart, the next person up is generally someone that's been trained within the family. Yeah, that's something you talked about on Adam Shine's podcast about, you know, guys work their way up through the system in New England and stay there. Of course, that is a difficult habit to replicate elsewhere if there isn't the longevity of a head coach or other pieces, right? If there's constant turnover, it's hard to have through line of people who have been built and and came up through the same system. But if you can do it, obviously, it it feels like it's it's a successful formula, at least based on what the Patriots have been able to do. And it's a hard way. Make no mistake about it. You know, being in that system is a hard life. I was a part of it for 17 years. And the strong survive. Right. And it not that program, that system, that way of life of doing things is really in certain ways so simple. 
yet it's difficult. It's a difficult lifestyle to live. Yeah, a lot and of discipline from what we hear from the outside. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it is, but it's a lot of discipline. But Sarah, it, it's it is, but it isn't. Because the truth is, it comes down to three things, and these were Bill's three basic tenets when I got to Cleveland. Be on time, pay attention, work hard. If you do those things in life and you approach your professional life with that much simplicity, the things that manifest themselves out of those three simple disciplines can be pretty spectacular. Like you said, it's simple. You would imagine that plenty of other coaches and front office people would be trying to preach the same things. So when you look across to teams like, say, the Browns or the Jets, teams that over the recent history have struggled so much, there's a constant change in who's in charge and who's dependent on. What do you see that that you can tell from afar? You're you're a five-time executive of the year. I know you're not within those buildings, but if you are able to provide some some insight from afar, what do you see that tells you that's why that's not working? I, I think there's not a commitment to it. He, he, you know, I think one of the things that Bill and I knew, there was a group of us that went up to the Patriots together. And the people that went to New England, because there was a lot of noise surrounding Bill, you know, that he, he had resigned from the Jets and he failed in Cleveland, everyone was beating him up. There was a group of us that signed on for what was a, you know, a mission that if we didn't succeed – we may never work again, right? We had left the family, et cetera. I bring that up to answer the question because I think that sometimes what happens with other people is they're too quick to change. After year one in New England, we were 5-11, and 11 and we started off poorly in 2001, and there were talks that we were getting fired. I will give Robert credit, Robert Kraft and the rest of his family credit for sticking with us yeah. and believing us and seeing it through. Now, were we fortunate to get that first Super Bowl in the second year? Yes, but everyone knew that we were a terrific team, but not that talented. I guess, Sarah, is that people don't stick and stay committed. And, and I say people, and, and, and I don't know who the people are, whether it's ownership, whether it's front office, whether it's coaches. They go in with a plan, and when things get crazy, what I've seen too many times in some of those dysfunctional organizations from afar, what it appears to me is that the survivalists take over. And instead of being willing to um, fail together, they separate and try to survive and save their own jobs, whether it's front office, coaching, scouting, cap, all that stuff. People try and they, they, they try for um, turf grabs. Right. Or they become survivalists. I mean, when things got wonky in in New England, there was an opportunity for people to choose different paths, myself included. My path was always going to be with Bill. That's Mm -hmm. just the way it was. Charlie Weiss's path was always going to be with Bill. Bears Najarian was always going to be with Bill. We stuck together truly in the toughest, toughest moments. And we, when Bill and I took that job together, we knew that we were either going to succeed together or fail together. So you have a ton of success, and you're with Bill in all these spots, and mm-hmm. then you end up going to the Chiefs. So tell yeah. me about the decision to go somewhere new and find success without Bill. Yeah, I think in retrospect, a, a lot of things I should have thought through better. You know, I, I'm a bit of a uh, – I'm much more sentimental than people would believe, a bit of a softy. So there was there were a handful of organizations in my mind that if they ever reached out to me – there were organizations with histories and rich histories that I wanted to be a part of. When the Kansas City Chiefs came calling, I was like, wow, that's the Kansas City Chiefs. So it was a f- maybe the second time that I decided that I wanted to listen to uh, something. I also felt Bill and I had been together 17 years at that point, I want to say it was, and nine years together in New England. I was still um, young. Gosh, so that was yeah, I'm still in my, you know, my early 40s, mid 40s. And I just felt like it was like it was time for a change. There was no big reason. And I wanted another challenge. And that was really the crux of it. And then after spending time with the Hunt family, with Clark, especially, um, I was like, this, this looks like something I want to try to do. Uh, so I made the jump. And it, it, when I say I was torn, I, that would be the understatement of the year. So I jumped at the opportunity. Yeah. 
So you had incredible success at the beginning there, uh, one of your five Executive of the Year honors, as you went from worst to first, getting a division title, going 10 and 6. And then You've there were your moments... research here. I am impressed. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> um, but then there were some low moments there, too. And there yeah. were people who blamed you for those low moments. What's that like? Because it is, what have you done for me lately? You could you could show up yeah. and do something great for a team, and immediately people will hire planes to raise banners yeah. about wanting to fire you. Yeah. Well, you know, Sarah, I did some things right there, and I did a lot of things wrong there. And some of the things that I did wrong and did a poor job of were some of the more critical things, right? As I was saying earlier, it's never any one thing um, that leads to success or failure, it's usually an accumulation of things, and, and I made mistakes. I upset some people, which is why you have banners like that, you know, save our chiefs, fire Pioli. You have moments where there were a lot of mistakes because there were certain things that I, none of us is ever prepared to become a head coach or a general manager. There is on-the-job training in your first time. And there were a number of things I failed at. I failed at my relationships with the media. I had never engaged or interacted with the media before. I came from a family of it's psychology 101. You see how something is done, you see it rewarded, and you see success, so you do it that way. It's one of those subconscious things. And I, when I went there, I did not want to be the face or the front of the franchise or one of the faces. I wanted to be the general manager and the personnel guy and find the players and let the head coach and the players be the front. That was one of the mistakes I made by not engaging the media in a respectful and appropriate way. Um, not that I was trying to be disrespectful. I just didn't want to do it. <laughs> I wanted to be a football right. guy. You know, you mentioned the early success and, and, and what happened in 2002 in the division championship in our second year and the executive of the year award. Here's one of the things I learned um, that my high school coach told me um, when we were having success and I was having personal success. He said, you know what, Scott? You're never as good as they say. There's going to be some really, really dark days, and you're never going to be as bad as they say. So don't set yourself too high on a pedestal when they're telling you how wonderful you are, but also don't go down in that valley. He said, the truth is, all of us are pretty average, and we have good days and bad days. <laughs> and it was interesting because, you know, in 2010, you know, in my early years at the, at the Patriots, um, when, you know, the... There were some of the accolades and the success and the championships. Everyone was talking about how smart I was and boy genius and all that garbage. I didn't buy into it, but the truth is that kind of felt good. The truth is I was never that smart, as people were trying to tell me. Then the other reality is in 2010, 11, and 12, when I got ripped to shreds and gutted because of the, the failure, I really wasn't that dumb or bad. Right. right. And right. and it was a great lesson that came home years later. So I was never as smart as they said. I was also never as bad or, or as dumb as they said. Well, and also so. it's frustrating because as someone who whose job it is to pick personnel and find the players that are going to do the best and, and invest in coaches that you that you believe in, you don't actually get to go out there and play. So, mm -hmm. you know. You're working Thankfully. with the Falcons, for instance, and I can't imagine the heartbreak of that Falcons Super Bowl loss. You're playing against your old team. You've got no, this you big can't. lead. Um, I mean, it hurts me for no other reason than I was just sick of the P Pats winning everything, and I was like, oh, they got this. This is great. What? How is this happening? But you put this team in a perfect position. They were successful. They made it all the way. And then you can't do anything as you're watching whatever coaching mistakes, whatever player mistakes are being made out on the field. But that reflects on you in ways that, you know, it still looks great. You're the guy in charge when the team makes the Super Bowl. But um, how do you sort of reconcile that, that you can put everything into place, but you can't be the one to bring it home? But that's part of it, though, too. And, you know, when you're it's interesting you said, first of all, I'll say this. That was a heartbreak. But. You know, I've lost, I've been a part of losing two Super Bowls, and both times it has been in epic fashion. So it was the one with the Falcons when we were up 28-3 to and lost that one. But remember, I was also part of the 16-0 and season that went to 18-0 and and lost. Yep. And because we didn't just lose the Super Bowl that year, we didn't just lose a game, we lost history. 
Perfection. And I got to tell you, um, as awful as 28-3 to 3 was, um, because of my role at the Patriots and what was really wrapped up in all of that, the other one was tougher to lose. Um, so I know how to lose now, too. I know how to win, <laughs> but I sure know how to lose as well, Sarah. Um, but, but back to your question, it's, um, you know, because of my personality, I hear what you're saying in terms of you put the players out there, let the players do their job, and let the coaches do the coaching. Again, I'm such a team guy that I don't believe that the loss is on just players or just coaching because there's so much that goes into success and failure prior to a game and a moment because people say, okay, look at how that went. Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they, you know, why wasn't the clock management better? You know, the people that say that, my feeling when I hear those comments, I feel why didn't we do a better job as an organization and have more discussions and see the holes that we had that led that to happen on that particular Sunday. Right. So even though I'm sitting up in a box watching players play and watching coaches make decisions, this is a team effort. This is a collaborative thing. This is one of the most beautiful parts about football, why I have, why I have fallen in love with it, is because you, you do things together. You don't succeed alone. You don't fail alone. So when people want to blame something on a coach or a player, to me – it's like, okay, it's like in your family, you know, when, when, when people do something or things don't go well, where, where were the, or any group of people, where were the adults in the room, right? Where were the people with the voices that had voices to keep this from happening? And I say that, Sarah, because I go back to the Patriots model, and you've just triggered this thought of me. I think going back to one of your original questions, why did I love working for Bill and want to work with Bill and be a partner with Bill because Bill Belichick is one of the best listeners that I've ever been around. And yeah. even though he, it, you know, you talk about we shared the role of GM, that's part of the beauty of being with Bill. When I was in that role, even though he had the authority to have all final decisions, just like he does with his coaches and his coordinators, he trusts people enough to let them make decisions. And as long as you have vetted it and have a smart reason and scientific and non-scientific reasons for doing things, there were a lot of success because of the collaboration at the Patriots. And so that's why I believe that it's never one person's fault that loses a game or it's not a coach's fault. Again, at some point in time, the general manager and the other people, the other adults in the room have an opportunity to stand up and say something if it you know if they don't think things are going the right way and say something about it or they don't yeah well and I also hope that makes sense i know it does when did i apologize no, i hope that makes sense Sarah. it totally makes sense but i think also something that i was thinking about as you're talking too is if you think to yourself i've put these players in a great position and they're successful why did they fail me now you have to also think about the players that you drafted really low and well outperformed your expectations and what was expected of them because they reflect so greatly on you for the work that they put in and how successful they are and they are just as much you know and and yes. uh, you have to focus as much on the ones that outdid what you expected of them as the ones that failed you otherwise yeah. it's a constant failure Yes, and Sarah, I mean, that's a brilliant point you just bring up because it's not only did the players, you know, outkick their coverage, but the people, the coaches, and the infrastructure that developed those players, right? The trainers that got them healthy or kept them healthy, the coaches that worked with them when those players were looking to work extra hours, right? The strength and conditioning coach, if the player is, if part of his thing is developing and growing, if it's Matthew Slater, who was a seventh-round pick, right, but wants to become this great player. Yes, Matthew did the work, and he had guidance and help along the way. It was coaches, it was trainers, it was strength and conditioning folks, it was the player programs director. That, that's part of it. No one succeeds or fails alone. And you bring up a brilliant point. You know, it's the development as well. Well, why did that player develop? You know, yeah. it, it, it takes a village. So you decide to step away from the Falcons, and you're working as a consultant for the NFL. You do a bunch of analyst work, but mainly what it feels like you in part stepped away for this little sabbatical of sorts is to focus on a lot of the work that you do 
within the football world, but not on the field. So you're on the board of the Women's Sports Foundation and you partnered with them to provide assistance to aspiring female football coaches and scouts. You have a Scott Dallas and Mia Pioli family endowed HBCU scholarship for women at historically black colleges and universities. You're on the board of a bunch of nonprofits. I mean, you are overcommitted, I would say, in the philanthropic and <laughs> diversity effort world. Why are you so committed to this? Can you trace that to something? Well, I'll say this. I don't think you can ever be overcommitted. Right. <laughs> wow, that's my life philosophy, too. It's working really well. I never sleep and I never relax. <laughs> you can't overcommit to helping people. I mean, I don't think that there's a ceiling on finding ways to help people that are less fortunate than you. Uh, I hear what you're saying, but I, I push back a little bit, kiddingly, but honestly. the right. um, All of this work, all of this that you're mentioning is not anything new. I've been doing this my entire career, my entire life, uh, my adult life. Because when I was younger, I was absolutely a knucklehead in a lot of ways. <laughs> so this is nothing new. I think people just see it because, um, because some of the things I've been working on and supporting for such a long time, it's become these things are being talked about more. But, you know, back in 2009, over a decade ago now, you know, I hired the, the NFL's first female director of player programs in Katie Douglas. So it, it's not like this is just happening now or just started and, you know, Brian Flores and there's, there's, a, there's a, a very large group of young black men that I have hired um, over the years. Brian Flores was an intern for me in 2004 because I believe that people need opportunities and need to be trained and need to be mentored. Um, it, it's just part of my life. It, it, you ask where it traces back to there, you know, I was, um, you know, a, a curious kid and a very, um, I wasn't a smart kid in a lot of ways. I wasn't necessarily hardworking, but I paid attention to everything that was going on around me and things affected me as a kid in a lot of different ways. One of the blessings I've had in my life is that I've always been able to feel things. And, um, the simplest example I can give in terms of the racial equality work that I've believed in my entire life, I've done the work my adult life, but I've always believed in it since the third grade. You know, my third grade teacher, Miss Cooper, who's now Mrs. Jackson, was the first black school teacher in our school district in, in the town of Washingtonville. And she was one of the most loving, caring, wonderful people I've ever met. Hmm. Now, prior to to entering that classroom, I had heard a lot of things about what Miss Cooper was going to be. Um, growing up in a town, Washingtonville, which at the time, beautiful people, hardworking people, but many people that had moved out of the Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn, you know, it was, I mean, I'll call it what it is. It was part of the 1960s white flight and people that were getting out of the city to suburbs that they were uh, creating to get away from elements that they didn't speak of very kindly. Right. So when Miss Cooper becomes the first black school teacher, I'm hearing a lot of things before I enter the classroom from a lot of different people in a lot of different places. And I get there, and from day one, when you show up and you get off the bus and you have to line up and you're meeting your teacher, she hugged every last kid that came out. And every single day that I went to that classroom for the entire third grade, Miss Cooper had a hug, a touch, a closeness, a support, and a love that was completely unconditional Damn. and very much different than many other teachers. And at seven years old and eight years old, I was exposed to a lie and an untruthful narrative about people that I've hung to my entire life. She, Miss Cooper, she, well, Mrs. Jackson, I still can't call her Mrs. Jackson. <laughs> um, she and I stay in touch. Um, she lives down in D.C. now. She's an, oh, I love still that. one of the most incredible, influential people in my life. And, and I tell that story because that was the beginning. And then at every stage and every year and every turn in my life, I've been exposed to seeing things through a different prism and that people um, are marginalized. The truth that people are marginalized, 
You know, in terms of the gender space, Sarah, I, I have two sisters who were better than me in every single way growing up. Okay. Um, they were better students. They were truly better athletes. Had they grown up in a different era rather than graduating high school in the 70s, they would have been scholarship athletes. I, I'm certain of that. They were smart. They were talented. Um, they, they were more reliable and dependable than I was. But, you know, I come after them. And because I can play football and I'm a dude, I get the opportunity to go to college that they didn't have and to get college paid for that they didn't have. And being a good Catholic, you know, or being raised a Catholic, you know, that good old-fashioned Catholic guilt still sticks with you. And I still think about that, how wrong that was and how fundamentally wrong that was. And watching so many people that I knew that were different than me that didn't have opportunities. And people, I always hear people say, well, They had choices. You know, they made their choices. That's why they ended up where they were. And what I say to people that that are that ignorant, I say to them, listen, when you look like me, you have different opportunities. My sisters didn't have the opportunity to dream like I dreamt. They didn't have the opportunities to think that life could be different like I did. And... I'm sorry to make this such a serious conversation. No, I mean, it's clear that that's what motivated you. You know, that's a big part of my why, Sarah. Um, There's people out there that are marginalized, that don't get opportunities, and it's just wrong um, in my mind. And I've just tried to do things um, in my own small way to present opportunities for people that deserve opportunities. Because in this country, everyone is supposed to deserve an opportunity. That's why this country was created as far as I can tell. Well, the work that you're doing is incredible. I wonder when you're out in football spaces, you know everybody, you, you have worked with the best and the most successful. You're married to someone whose dad is, you know, a part of this other generation, this great line of, of football successes. How easy is it for you to try to push the, the work that you're doing and have it be accepted, whether that's diversity of female hires, diversity of race hires, or is there still this sort of old boys oh, club absolutely. or this is the way it's always been that you run up against? Absolutely. It's very difficult. And again, sometimes um, it's getting better. It is better. And it's nowhere near good enough. Hmm. Um, is it still difficult with certain with some people? Yes. Are there others out there that think and believe like me? Absolutely. I'm not a unicorn. And I think sometimes people are afraid to, they'll, they, they do the work, as I like to call it, but they're cautious to stand up because when you do stand up publicly, there's, there's a downside to that. So it's better, but it's not good. Um, is there pushback still? Absolutely. And there, and, and as we all know that, you know, there's, there's, um, people who do things for public optics and, or say things for public optics and they say things publicly and they'll do a little bit here to make the situation look better, but they don't either really believe in it, but they're not really trying to change things. So it, it is difficult, but again, I'm, yeah, I'm not a lone wolf out there. I know some really good people, um, and I'm sure you do too, Sarah, that yeah. that are doing this work as well. We just need more people doing it and more people feeling confident about themselves and not being worried about the people that you help. Here's, I think, a big part of what the problem is. I think that I am totally comfortable in my space and what my opportunities are. I'm also very comfortable with the fact that people that I'm helping get to the table if they're better than me and they sometimes they might get a job that maybe I wanted to. Hmm. If you're a true competitor, you know, you, you don't worry about things like that. Anyway, I, I think, hope that answers the question. It does. It really does. It's, it's, it's super impressive. And, um, you know, it's great when people like you are so invested in this work because you have the pull and the influence and the agency to actually get stuff done and hopefully turn the minds of some of those around you that maybe aren't quite so evolved on it. But I know there are some great people in the NFL working on it. I'm obsessed with Sam Rappaport. I think she's like such a little baller and going to change things a lot. So She's terrific. Yeah. Tremendous. 
tremendous respect for her. Uh, she, she is terrific. But again, you say that I appreciate you saying the kind words, but it really, it, it, again, it goes back to what I was saying differently, but similarly about Bill and the time at the Browns. Doing the quality work, believing in equality is really, it, it, it's really pretty simple. Right. It's right. no It should great, be. It should be. Yeah, it, it should be. And it can yeah. be. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier we have to do this another time, and we're clearly going to because there's so much to get to, but uh, we are out of time now. So you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. No one expects? Yeah. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right. It's an old Monty Python reference. It's the I, 10 questions. Monty Python. Everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one. What's your Desert Island album? You could only have one. Ooh, only one? Yeah, it's a really mean question. It's terrible. It's a horrible <laughs> question. Can I do two ha- two sides of one album? Sure. Okay, one side of Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. No, one side of Bruce Springsteen's Wild Innocent and the E Street Shuffle, and one side Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, those are like two of my all-time favorites. Oh, New- NYC Serenade is Pink Floyd, like the greatest song of all time. Um, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Oh, habit or quality? I, I don't like the question because that that <laughs> makes it sound like I'm too much responsible for my quote unquote success. I defer that question because it's been because of other people. That is not um, an answer that I will accept. I appreciate your uh, humility. Okay, but. Um, I, I, habit or quality, I would say quality is that um, I'm extremely reflective and overthink things. Okay. I, I'll take that. I'll take that one. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? My time in Kansas City and my the, the job that I didn't get done at the Kansas City Chiefs. Hmm. Number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> Mostly football related or otherwise? Uh, unfortunately, um, <laughs> I was an angry kid, <laughs> you know what I mean? And surrounded by angry people. And, but I'll say this, I would say that 80% of the fist fights that I had as a kid and a teenager was because I was defending other people. Okay. Kids that were being picked on. Yeah. Okay. That was a big deal of mine. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Oh, oh my gosh. Well, I like. Uh, I was going to say Dick Buckus, but you know that. Um, <laughs> I don't. As an adult, I would probably say um, Condoleezza Rice. Oh, interesting. Okay, and I knew yeah, I could count on you life. to switch switch genders. Like, I would because, only get a day, huh? Yeah, most people most people don't even think about why wouldn't I switch genders? Why wouldn't I want to see what that was like? So I, I appreciate that you uh, that you were into that. Um, Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Now, that's a long... uh, (laughs) It happens all the time. Um, (laughs) I I would say, like, in a serious embarrassment would probably be um, the realization and the ultimate moment of acknowledging failure and being fired at the Kansas City Chiefs. Right, yeah. Um, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, again, there's a long list here. This is, Sarah, <laughs> you didn't tell me there was going to be a test. <laughs> um, I would say um, getting refocused on the most important relationships in my life, friends and family um, that I don't see all the time. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Gratitude and civility. Yes, gosh, you speak my language. Those are my. Those are that. Those right. are recurring themes on this particular gratitude podcast. Gratitude and civility. Yeah, those are good. Again, ones. we can disagree. Can we just be civil about it? Strongly and be nice yeah. to one another. Yeah. 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 Number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? The most scared. Again, in reality, it it was uh, a circumstance that happened when I was a kid that I don't want to get into the details. Um, And I would say possibly uh, the reality that hit me after the Javon 
Belcher murder-suicide. What was the reality? What scared you about it? In the moment, I didn't realize I was just um, trying to fix. And then after I realized, I was afraid afterwards because I realized how real that situation was. And I was shaking. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, Number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Oh, um, fair, thoughtful, and demanding. Mm, I like those. Uh, and finally, who should I have on this podcast? Does it have to be about sports? It can be about life, no, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Anything and everything. Wow. Bill Parcells. You know a guy? A guy, a guy that might be able. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a fascinating life. That's a good yeah. one. And, um, and again, there's, here's what I'll say. And the reason I said that, um, because I could think of a lot of other really cool people, I say that because there's this entire generation growing up right now that has no idea who Bill Parcells is. And yeah, one totally. of the amazing things about this game and all of these games is that people that are, are monsters of the game now People don't even remember who they are when they pass. Or, and mm-hmm. there's this whole generation that doesn't respect the history enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there you go. That's a good one. Hey, thanks for taking the time to do this. This was really fantastic. Oh, you're terrific, Sarah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I ran about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, the fact that literally everything seems bad for the planet, like Cut back on eating animals because of climate change. Oh, but now you're making life harder for the farmers and that land. Eat weirdly shaped and not perfectly colored produce so it doesn't go to waste because people don't choose it at the grocery store. Ah, but that produce is shipped to you by a service that wastes packing materials and then uses gas to transport it to you. Today, it's this one. Drink almond milk. It's healthy. It's lactose-free. It has less calories. It doesn't use all the animals. Oh, but wait. Now it turns out almond milk production is killing bees. And I just read another story that told us that bees are the most important animal slash insect slash being on the planet to the survival of our entire ecosystem. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because I'm at the point where I feel guilty if I use too many squares of toilet paper. That's how bad I feel about wasting anything right now. Everything is bad and the world is on fire and I feel totally hopeless. And this is definitely not the lighthearted South Bitch session I was hoping it would eventually round out into being. I really shouldn't record these on Mondays, and especially after I've just read really depressing news articles. (sighs) All right. I feel really good about what I accomplished. No, I don't. I don't feel good. But I will say this. I will say something positive because I need to finish on a higher note than this. At least we're studying the effects of things like almond milk production and what things uh, are related to our behaviors, caring about how they affect the world, and hopefully – hopefully crossing my fingers, changing our behaviors as a result, because it's a whole lot better than the old days when we used to, I don't know, just dump trash into lakes and use aerosol cans with abandon. I guess it's better than that. Knowledge is power. There, I fixed it, I guess. And now I have to stop drinking almond milk. Thanks for listening. So that's what she said. If you got a dilemma for me to fix that's not as depressing as that, tweet it to me at Sarah's Bain. Go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe, rate, review. Leave the dilemma in your review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. 